You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. And I am Dr. Timothy Bailey, sitting in for Dr. Stephen Edelman. How might new experimental approaches lead to improved treatment of diabetic ulcers and other slow-to-heal wounds? Joining us to discuss a new approach to the treatment of wounds is the Director of Research at the Burn and Shock Trauma Institute and Professor and Vice Chair of Research, Department of Surgery at Loyola University Medical Center in Maywood, Illinois, Dr. Elizabeth Kovacs. Dr. Kovacs, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you for inviting me. Patients with diabetes have wounds, and these really cause significant uh, morbidity to our patients. And so the usual approach is through antibiotics, through things such as uh, hyperbaric uh, chambers, but it's really a big problem for our patients with diabetes, and they cause them to suffer a lot. And so this is a really great opportunity to have a new therapy. I'd like to ask you just in, in preparation how, how this area of uh, research got to be interesting to you. Well, I've been working in uh, trauma and wound healing research for the last 15 or so years and sort of stumbled upon um, a, a research area in which we discovered almost by accident that depleting or blocking a, a small subset of leukocytes called natural killer T-cells improved the cosmetic healing of burn wounds in an animal model. And because of that, we decided to further explore how dermal wound healing um, occurs and what the cell sub subsets are that are involved in that process. We've looked at, at multiple different cell subsets, including um, macrophages, which um, are involved in promoting wound healing and are actually required for the wound healing process, according to the majority of the literature, uh, along with neutrophils, which are an early uh, infiltrating cell that's responsible for clearing bacteria from a wound, and natural killer T-cells, which are uh, a little-known cell type that's present in very small quantities in, in the body and in uh, different tissues, which seems to play a pivotal role in regulating how the wound healing process can occur. You know, most of us think that the white blood cells are just fantastic. That's the cavalry coming to save us from the infections. So how can these neutrophils that are supposed to be so good actually be harmful in this healing process? The problem is that everything works perfectly in moderation, and you probably know that from many other fields of, of research and medicine, in that having too much of something is bad, but having just the right amount is good, sort of the Goldilocks theory, I guess. And one of the problems with neutrophils is that while they are doing their good job of uh, controlling infection and removing debris, they also release hydrolytic enzymes, which can uh, damage or destroy tissue. So while doing some good, they also do some bad. Being the director of research of a burn and shock trauma institute, uh, a lot of our work is done with uh, the, our unfortunate subjects in, in our burn unit. But we're trying to model some of the wound healing scenarios as well as systemic complications of, of burn injury to try to work on therapeutics that can be applied back from the bench to the bedside. People with uh, diabetes that develop wounds 
particularly foot ulcers, have significant morbidity and even can die from these infections, just like people with burns. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Timothy Bailey, and I am speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Kovacs, and we are discussing new experimental approaches to the treatment of diabetic wounds. Well, we're all, I guess, looking at uh, aging in ourselves, uh, but patients with in in our communities are aging. There's more diabetes, and I understand that's an, that's an area that you have a lot of interest in. Yes, we've been working on innate immunity, the part of the immune system that is most immediately attracted to uh, an injured or infected site, and trying to determine what changes as we get older so that we can, again, uh, attempt to implement therapeutic interventions to decrease some of the negative consequences of aging. Is there any difference other than they may be more vulnerable or produce something less? Dermal wound healing is uh, less efficient in older subjects. Usually wounds remain open for a longer period of time clinically, and one of the consequences of that is increased susceptibility for infection. Compounding that, the uh, innate immune system of older subjects has numerous defects in terms of how cells can be recruited or migrate to the site of an injury or infection, how they phagocytose or eat debris, and how they clear pathogens from that environment. And without a functioning innate immune system, it's very difficult to efficiently heal wounds. I'd like to kind of focus in more about these natural killer T cells and the proteins that they produce and how that all works just a little bit more in detail. Sure. Uh, Natural killer T cells are um, a, a pivotal cell in the immune system in that they can, depending on their environment, they can either be beneficial or detrimental to overall immune responses. One of the things that turns out that they do in wounds is that they alter the level of what are referred to as chemokines, the, the hormones of the immune system, which can recruit other white blood cell types to the site of injury, can recruit uh, epithelial cells, keratinocytes, endothelial cells to close a wound, and that if they are depleted, some of the, those parameters change, allowing the cells that you need to come into the wound to come in, and perhaps even blocking some of the cells that you don't want to come in. How do you, how do you see this playing out in terms of what actually gets targeted and how this therapy might actually be administered? Many of our studies are done with genetically deficient animals. We're now trying to devise some methodologies to give uh, antibodies against some of the constituents to specifically block one sub subtype of cell or another. And right now, most of those therapies have been administered systemically. So through either an intravenous injection or something that will get around the entire animal. Um, And that's obviously not the ideal way to do it because uh, you don't really want to alter systemic immunity as much as you might want to alter the wound healing process locally. So coming up with uh, therapies that could be administered topically or within a more contained environment would clearly be beneficial. So you're looking at selectively targeting a group of basically an area of need, either by sort of spraying it or applying it on the wound, or if you would apply it systemically, I guess you'd have something that would home in on the area. Ideally it would, but unfortunately what we have so far are not the the perfect molecules to target. I see. So these are things that are 
active everywhere in the body. If if something is administered intravenously, clearly it goes everywhere. Um, whether we could block something from entering a wound from the wound side has yet to be established. Once leukocytes either migrate into an open space because there's an injury or migrate out of a blood vessel into the surrounding connective tissue, um, once they're there, making them uh, go away is very difficult. How about the cells that it's acting on? Do these cells ever move to other places? Absolutely. I mean, there's a, a huge body of literature looking at um, excessive scar tissue formation in other uh, bodily compartments, in the lung, in the liver, um, as well as elsewhere. Um, and they're pretty much the same pathways that, are, are, that can be altered. And if you could inhibit excessive neutrophils from getting into the lung of someone with a pulmonary infection, there may be more of a chance of the cells that are better at phagocytosing or eating those bacterial elements um, than the neutrophils, uh, it, you might be able to improve uh, a pulmonary infection in, in an individual. This is interesting. But you, you're, you may actually affect not only the, the speed to healing, but actually the quality of the healing of the wound. I think that's the most remarkable thing about this. And healing of wounds is certainly important to limit infection, but having a, a more cosmetically uh, attractive wound is certainly something that is, is of great importance. And part of that involves the, the kinds of models that we've worked on so far. With our natural killer T cells, everything has been exclusively an aseptic or sterile wound. We haven't yet tried this therapeutic intervention in an infected wound, and that's where we're heading since many wounds that close more slowly are more likely to become infected. The effect of, of uh, glucose actually on neutrophils was something that is, it was explored in the, in the literature almost 40 years ago. And one of my, my mentors actually published this, I think it was back in the 1970s, and he showed the mechanism for why patients with diabetes seem to be more prone to infections, that actually there was some interference with the um, leukocytosis, it might be interesting if have you looked at at uh, the effect of glucose on all this. Not just that's another thing to kind of throw into the mix. I think we haven't looked at it directly. We have monitored glucose in our burn injured patients for sure, as well as in some of our burn uh, burn experiments in in animal models. And glucose regulation is clearly altered after any kind of stress or traumatic injury, and trying to regulate it or at least provide therapeutics that will restore um, normal glucose levels is important. Now, this is a it's, it's extremely hard to do glucose uh, correction in patients in the hospital. And it's been a very controversial area. Trying to, and even our targets are clearly not down to normal. And so I think it might be, it'd be interesting if, if you look at the, the glucose levels that are presently being targeted, instead of being less than 100 or even 110, are mostly now most intensive care units between 120 and 180. So this is going to be, I think, an important thing. If we, if if you, and I really hope that you look at this in diabetes, because um, this is something that you're, you know, these are patients that are going to be in your burn units, and uh, they're going to, these are these are patients that have great great needs. Absolutely. So I'd like to thank our guest, director of research at the Burn and Shock Trauma Institute, and professor and vice chair of research. Department of Surgery at Loyola University Medical Center in Maywood, Illinois, Dr. Elizabeth Kovacs. Dr. Kovacs, thank you so much for spending time with us 
on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with your group. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes, whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.